Okay, if you have a Bible with you, would you be so kind as to open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? How many of you guys uh, were at our community Good Friday service this past week? Got a handful of you guys. It was fun. It was really nice to to see the different churches in town come together for an event like that. Like I usually say, the father likes it when his kids play nice together. Um, they they let me be the speaker, and um, and I didn't really offend anybody. It seems like they still want to be my friends, and I was pretty encouraged about that. Um, but a few people came to me after the the service on Friday, and asked if I would. Thank you, sir. So thoughtful. If I would, um, if I'd offer the same message today, they enjoyed it so much that um, they thought it would be beneficial to hear it again and for our church as a whole to hear it. So, um, new experience for me for preaching the same message twice within a week. I've modified it a little bit for us today. Good Friday and Easter Sunday are two of the most uh, significant events in human history. I mean, it's got to be right up there along with creation and the incarnation, right? We have have Good Friday where where Jesus sacrifices himself so that we can have a relationship with the Father. And then just a few days later, we have the glorious resurrection. This This is a good week to remember what God has done. So this morning, I want to... Um, I want to take what might be a unique look at the cross. I want to ask some questions. And I want to challenge, possibly, some common assumptions that we have concerning the cross. And I want to answer this one question. Is the cross punishment or is the cross a cure? Next Sunday I'll return to my, to my series on, on mercy. I haven't quite finished that up yet. So if you're open to 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, if you write in your Bibles or... If you can highlight it somehow on your your phone or your tablet, I want to zero in on verse 19 today, where it says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. I'll come back to that. So like many of you, I'm sure, I was raised believing the following, concerning the cross, that the cross was punishment, for the sins of mankind. Jesus was taking the punishment for our sins. I was taught that the justice, of, the justice of God demanded a sacrifice for sin. That God was holy 
and that he was just, and that he could not bear the presence of sin, and that a, an atoning sacrifice was demanded. That sound like anything you've heard in your experience of going to church, right? I mean, that's most of us have learned over the years. And that to satisfy God's need for justice and his demand for holiness, God the Father sent his son to earth to die in a brutal agony of crucifixion as punishment for the sins of mankind, right? And that Jesus, in his great love, he paid the price, and we get to go free. I get to go free. That's a pretty good deal on my end, right? He pays the price, I get to go free. Pretty good deal for us. Not such a good deal for Jesus, right? He, had, he, had to, he was brutalized, he was beaten, took our sins upon him, he, he dies. So Jesus looks pretty good in this story. However, the Father doesn't look so good from this perspective. What does this story say about the Father? That his demand for justice required um, this brutal sacrifice and that it was executed upon his son. You know, what does it say about the father? What does it say about any father? I'm a father. What would it say about me as a father? So let me just throw out this hypothetical example. You come to my house, and while you're out my house, you do something that offends me. I don't know, maybe you break my favorite toy. You do something I'm not happy about. And because of this offense, in order for me to forgive you, I need to get this wrath out of me. And so what I do is I have a couple of guys take my son out in the backyard and they beat him to death with baseball bats. I just kind of watch from the porch, but they beat him to death. And now that, you know, now that I've gotten this out of my system, now that the price has been paid and you know, justice has been satisfied, you and I can be friends. Want to be my friend? <laughs> would, would you want to be friends with anybody who would beat their son to death in order that you two could have a relationship. I don't know. Thinking about it that way makes this whole crucifixion story a little bit screwy for me. How about you? Yeah. Have you ever thought of it this way before? Possibly not. Would you want to be friends with anyone who would brutally beat his innocent son to death? Would you want to be friends with anyone who would make his son pay a price that he was seemingly unwilling to pay himself. Right? Father, why didn't you come to the cross? Why do you have to send the son to do it? Right? Kind of like when we were kids. You know, Dad wanted this snow shovel, so he'd send me out to shovel snow. Why don't you shovel the snow? <laughs> you want me to cut the grass. Let's be out to cut the grass. I think, you know, if you want a nice looking lawn, why you make me do it? Right? The sins of the world have to be paid for. Son, you go down there and get on the cross. I don't know. I didn't like it when I was a kid. And from this perspective, I'm looking at the story of the crucifixion, and I'm thinking to myself, something's not right here. <laughs> Something doesn't fit. The crucifixion story, most often told, paints God the Father as an angry, bloodthirsty deity whose appetite for vengeance can only be satisfied by the death of an innocent, the most compassionate and gracious human who've ever lived. Am I the only one who struggles with that concept? Am I the only one who looks at it from this perspective? You know, from this perspective, a case could be made that God the Father is not much different than Molech or Baal or any of the other false deities that required human sacrifice to 
satisfy their uncontrollable rage. Something's wrong with this story. Could the same God who asked us to forgive without seeking vengeance be requiring of us what he was unable or unwilling to do himself? Is God demanding us to be more gracious than he was? If we look at it from this perspective, something is wrong with this story. Now, I'll admit that many Old Testament writers, they did look forward to the cross as a sacrifice that would satisfy God. And they certainly used the language of punishment to describe it. But the New Testament writers, looking back on the cross, they saw it very differently. Through the redemption of the cross, they saw it quite differently. They didn't see it as an act of an angry God seeking restitution, but rather they saw it as the self-giving of a loving God to rescue broken humanity. The New Testament picture of the cross does not present God as a brutalizing tyrant expending his anger on innocent victims, but as a loving father who took the devastation of our failures and held it in the consuming power of his love until sin was destroyed. And by that, God opened the door, a way, a portal, for us to re-engage in a trusting relationship with the God of the universe. The New Testament writers saw the cross not as a sacrifice God needed in order to love us, but one we needed to be reconciled to him. Listen to that again. The New Testament writers saw the cross not as a sacrifice God needed in order to love us, but one that we needed in order to be reconciled to him. So I believe that much of the church has a distorted view of the cross. I think we get the story wrong. And I think it's, I think it's a significant problem that needs to be rectified because it dramatically impacts our relationship with them. Since Adam's fall, we've come to picture God the Father not as a loving Father, inviting us to trust Him, but rather as some exacting sovereign who must be appeased. When we start from that vantage point, we miss God's purpose concerning the cross. His plan was, was not to meet or satisfy some need in himself at his son's expense, but rather to satisfy a need in us at his own expense. So if this question nags me. When we look at the, the story of the crucifixion, where is the father? Where is he? Where is he during this incredible event? So I've said this before. You know, maybe we haven't quite said it quite this bluntly, but am I the only one who for a big part of my Christian experience saw God the Father as the mean one and Jesus as the nice one and the Holy Spirit as the weird one? Right? Right? I mean, I always had an easy time connecting to Jesus. I really struggled connecting with the Father. How many of you guys saw the movie The Passion of the Christ? Right? Powerful movie. You know? 
I mentioned the other day, the first day it came out, we went to the afternoon matinee, the very first showing. It was powerful. And I was deeply impacted. I think it's the only time I've been in a movie theater when the, when the movie ended, it's like no one moved. They were just stilled in their seats. And you could hear some people sobbing. And they stayed like that for a long time. It was, it was reverent, the atmosphere. Loved the movie, except for one scene. And it's really one of the most powerful scenes in the movie. It's at the, the it is finished scene where, where this, this seemingly teardrop from heaven falls from the father's eye. And as it comes down and lands on Calvary's Hill, this boom is like this earthquake that hits. You guys remember that scene, the teardrop scene? You know, it, it makes for good drama, but it makes for terrible theology. You know, that the Father, what it does is it reinforces and communicates an assumption that many of us have. That the Father is observing this from a distance. He's observing the cross from a distance. It reinforces these assumptions. That the Father could not look upon sin. That the Father could not be in the presence of sinful man. And so he turned away from his Son, forsaking him on the cross. Anybody else ever have that? concept of the crucifixion, right? And at that moment, that Jesus became sin, the Father forsook him. And so I'm deeply bothered. It really troubles me that somehow God the Father was able to separate himself from God the Son on the cross. You have to understand, the Trinity existed before anything else did. They've always been together. They've always been one. They've always been one in perfect love, and perfect harmony, perfect unity, three in one. The fact that somehow they could be separated at this most critical of moments bothers me. It doesn't fit. At my son's worst moment in his life, my heart's desire would be right by his side. If he's in the fire, I want to be in the fire with him. If he's in the pit, I'm going to climb down that pit to be with him. He's my son. Forsake him, I would die for him at that moment. I'm just a man. I've told you before, the day my daughter was born, I laid eyes on her. I held her in my hands for the first time, and I realized I'm in love with this little girl. I would take a bullet for her right now. I've known her for seven seconds, I would die for her. Right? The Father and Son have been in one in unity with the Spirit for all time. And now at this most critical of all moments, of all human existence, now the Father's going to forsake him? Something doesn't fit. I'm deeply bothered by the thought that in some way God was able to separate himself with the cross. That somehow God the Father executed wrath on God the Son while standing at some discreet distance. Such thinking not only denies the essence of God's nature in the Trinity, but it distorts, I believe it distorts what actually happened on the cross. Remember I told you I wanted to come back to 2 Corinthians 5.19. It says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Now you can read that a couple of different ways. I'm reading it the way it's, it says it, that God was reconciling, God the Father was reconciling the world to himself inside Christ on the cross. 
that God was not, God the Father was not some distant observer, but rather he was an active participant in this most, I can, what, what would be an appropriate term, terminology? The most significant turning point in human history. I don't believe the Father was a distant observer. I believe he was completely active. That he didn't send Jesus to do what he would not do, but God the Father himself acted through Jesus to bring about our redemption. Okay, so some of you might be thinking to yourself, hey, Tom, what about that whole little thing in the resurrection where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says that on the cross, right? So what does that mean? Well, in short, I'll tell you, I don't believe it means that God the Father forsook God the Son when he was on on the cross. Could the faithful one be unfaithful to his son at that moment. In John 16, 32, Jesus says, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone. For my Father is with me. What, what event is Jesus describing there? He's describing the cross. There's going to come a time when you're all going to leave me. I've been arrested, I've been beaten, they've crucified me. That's when you guys all split. But I want you to know, I'm not alone. The Father's with me. I don't believe for a minute that the Father forsook the Son. Not for a minute. I believe that there's a vast difference between what God the Father did and what Jesus perceived. For this reason. Now we can identify with this. Salt, sin dulls our perception of God. When you say it's true of your life, that when you're in the throes of sin, when you're wrapped up in sinful behavior, it dulls, it makes us numb, it makes us calloused to the presence of God. And on the cross, Scripture says, Christ became our sin. Remember, he was perfectly God, perfectly man, Jesus was. And on the cross, he became our sin. Verse 21, we read this morning of 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin. I believe there's a huge difference between the distorted perceptions of our sin and the reality of our God. I think that's why we often feel abandoned in our darkest moments. It's not that God the Father would forsake us. It's just that we can't see him through all of our stuff. We can't sense he's there. But he's the one who said that he would never leave us and that he would never forsake us. Remember, Jesus said that. Could the Father have forsaken the Son if the Son said that he would never forsake us? I don't know. That doesn't fit for me. The resounding truth is that God's always there, never turning his face against those who are his. To believe he did so with Christ on the cross, for me, it's just unthinkable. That Jesus felt abandoned on the cross only shows the depth to which he experienced our sin. And remember... That was not his final statement on the cross. 
Jesus' final statement on the cross wasn't this questioning, Father, why have you forsaken me? His final statement on the cross was a statement of trust, was a statement of faith in the Father. When he says, into your hands, Father, into your hands, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So I think he navigated through that dark moment where when he became our sin and felt forsaken, he navigated through it and at the end, he could see the Father was there. And he put his trust in his Father. So here's the false argument that I think we've, we've uh, foolishly you know, accepted. That God cannot bear to look on sin. And so when Jesus became sin, or our sins are laid on him on the cross, the Father had to turn his face away from the Son. Anybody ever heard that in the past? Right? That sounds familiar. But the argument just doesn't hold water, and this is why. Because God has never run from sinful humanity. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They sinned. They were hiding. The father wasn't hiding. It wasn't the father wearing fig leaves. Adam and Eve were wearing the fig leaves. They were hiding from God. God was not hiding from them. The fact that they had sinned had no impact on whether or not God could could view them. God was looking for them. I shared a couple of it was last week or a couple of weeks ago about Jesus going to Matthew's house. Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, who would, in common language, would probably be a loan shark today. Him and all his sinner friends. Jesus didn't hide from them. Jesus said to Matthew, I'm going to your house. So Matthew has Jesus over. With all of Matthew's sinner friends, they're all sitting at the table eating together. It seemed like Jesus had no problem looking on this. And the woman caught in the act of adultery. I always wonder where the guy was. Why well, didn't drag him out too? But, but was Jesus hiding from her? He stood by her side. He saved her life that day. Jesus has no problem looking on sin. The Father has no problem looking on sin. He's not the one who hides. We're the one who hides. In our shame, we were buried in sin. I mean, so much so was Jesus comfortable. In the, friend, uh, in the company of sinners, that the Pharisees threw out this accusation concerning him. They called him a friend of sinners, as though that was some kind of insult. I would wear it as a badge of honor. God can look on sin. He looked on their sin. There was no need for the Father to turn away from the Son because of the sin. There's nothing in Scripture to back up that false assumption. God's powerful enough and holy enough to look on sin and be completely untainted by it. He always has. And I think it was true at the cross. By allowing sin to touch his personhood through the Son, God would be able to prevail in himself over that which we were powerless to fight. Through the physical body of Jesus, Sin came face to face with the power of God. And as always, God prevailed over sin completely. So, I've laid out a, you know, the paradigm of, of the cross as punishment. What if we look at it from a different perspective? What if the cross isn't punishment? What if the cross is a 
cure? What if the cross isn't punishment for sin? What if the cross is a cure for sin? So think about it this way. I think this is language that makes, it, makes what actually happened on Calvary a little bit clearer. What if sin is a disease? What if we think of sin as cancer? And what if we look at the wrath of God as the, as the cure for the disease? The treatment, the antidote for sin, the chemotherapy. So the, the wrath, chemo, wrath slash chemo, isn't against me, but it's against the sin slash cancer inside of me. That makes sense, that analogy? The wrath of God then isn't executed against me, but it's actually there for me. It isn't God's uncontrollable rage against me, but instead it's God's passionate and his extravagant love for me and against the cancer inside of me. Think about it. The purpose of chemotherapy, now probably everyone in this room has someone that they know whose life was touched by cancer, right? The purpose of chemotherapy is to kill the cancer before it kills the patient. It's a careful balancing act of brutal poisons. Unfortunately, I know this all too well from personal experience. God the Father in Christ took the chemotherapy treatment in our place. Because he knew that the chemo of wrath would have killed us before it killed the cancerous sin. That was God's dilemma in wanting to rescue us. The passion he had to cure our sickness of sin would overwhelm us before the work was done. Only God himself was strong enough, powerful enough to endure the treatment of healing that was required. The treatment that our brokenness demanded. So what did he do? He took our place. He embraced our disease by becoming sin, and then he drank the antidote that would consume sin in his own body. Now, for those with a more theological bent, that, my friends, is substitutionary atonement. He took our place because he was the only one that could endure the cure for sin. I mean, think about it. Most, most people who were crucified, they died in 30 hours, more or less. Jesus was dead in six. Was that because he was some kind of wimpy, weak, weakling or something? I don't think so. I think it was because the cure, God's passionate love, the wrath of God, this cure for sin... This spiritual chemotherapy was so powerful. They killed him. How long would you last under that kind of power? God's purpose in the cross was not to defend his holiness by punishing Jesus instead of us. That was not his purpose. Rather, it was to, to destroy sin in the only vessel that could hold it in God's passion. Until sin was totally destroyed. So perhaps we need to rethink the crucifixion. 
God was not there brutalizing his son as retribution for our failures. He was loving us through the son in a way that would set us free. Free to know him and transform us to be like him. Now that's a God worth knowing. And it changes everything in the Easter story. I think it dramatically changes it. So you might be saying to yourself this morning, okay, Tom, what does this matter? You know, is it like I'm trying to figure out how many angels could sit on the head of a pen? Am I just splitting theological heads? I don't think so. I think it matters. I think this matters profoundly. Let me explain why. I won't trust someone who would beat his son to death. I can't trust that guy. I don't want to be friends with that guy. I don't want to know that guy. I'm certainly not going to put my life in his hands. I'll forever be friends with someone and trust someone who's willing to take chemotherapy in my place. I know what it's like to sit there with the needle in my arm all those hours and the... (laughs) And the devastating effect it had on my body. And how long it took to recover. Someone who beat his son, I don't trust that guy. I don't want to be friends with that guy. You're telling me you're going to sit in that chair in my place and take that treatment for me so that I can be healed of cancer? You I will trust. I will be your friend to my dying day. I'll follow you into the gates of hell. I'll do anything for you. That's a guy I can trust. This is why it's so important that we understand the cross properly. I think some of us have trouble trusting God because we have not the right picture of who God the Father is. Instead of seeing him as this demanding, brutalizing tyrant whose justice has to be satisfied by sacrificing his son, I don't know, I'm suspicious of that image of who God is. It's hard for me to embrace him. But if he's in Christ on the cross, if he's taken the chemo in my place, if he's taken, if the cross is a cure and not punishment, right? Doesn't scripture say there's no punishment in love? If he's taken the cure in my place, I don't trust him. And that's what this whole journey is about, guys. This is what, what our journey as Christians throughout our lives is all about. Building a relationship with God. How can you have a relationship with someone you can't trust? The depth of your relationship will only go to the degree that you can trust the other person. This is absolutely true of our relationship with God. A distorted view of the the cross, what an effective weapon of the enemy that would be. Just stick that wedge in there like he did in the garden. The issue with the garden, I've told you this before, was not sin. It wasn't disobedience. It was to put a wedge between Adam and Eve and their God. Basically what the serpent was saying is you can't trust him. He's holding out on you. And they bought into it, man. That's been the lie from the beginning. And I think there's been a distortion of the cross. It's the exact same attack. You can't trust the father. Look how he treated his son. Can you imagine how he would treat you? If I have a different view of him, if I see him differently, if I see the cross differently, I tell you what, that's going to impact my walk. That's going to impact my relationship with him. That's going to empower me to trust him when it's hard to do it. 
Maybe it's because of my, my, my time with cancer that this imagery works so powerfully for me. So I know what a loving act this would be. I think religion sees the cross as punishment. Relationship sees it as a cure for a disease that was killing us. Our Heavenly Father loves us lavishly. He loves us extravagantly. So I pray that you could see it differently. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. The Father, Son, and the Spirit, they've always been one. They've shared a perfect communion of love before time existed. They always have. They always will. And by the cross, we've been welcomed into that relationship. It matters because it radically changes our concept of Christianity. If we think that the Father can abandon the Son in his hour of need, then we can, then we can believe that he would abandon us in our darkest hour. If the Father can mistreat the Son, then we can excuse mistreating one another. If the Father is harsh, pastors and prophets, they can excuse being harsh. Right? But if we see the Father as one who loves extravagantly, as one who loves lavishly, and we view the cross from that perspective, then are we not only called to love extravagantly, but we're empowered to love extravagantly. Why? Because his nature resides within us. For me, it changes everything. It absolutely changes everything about Christianity. It's all about trust. Which father would you trust? The one who would beat his innocent son or the one who would take chemo in your place? I think we've misunderstood one of the most significant events in human history and that it's had a devastating impact on trust relationships with our God, who scripture says is rich in mercy and who loves us lavishly with a great love. God's good. He loves us. He has a plan. It's a good plan. He's worthy of our trust. Now, part of the reason why I'm offering this, this eight-week workshop on spiritual gifts is I want to help you better be able to communicate between you and God. I want to help you understand the ways that he communicates. This is my premise. Any healthy relationship has clear lines of communication between the people in the relationship. The better the communication, generally, the better the relationship. Now, I think that most of us love God. I think that some of us trust God. I think that few of us communicate clearly with him. Or, or are able to receive communication from him clearly. So the reason why I'm doing this workshop is for that purpose, for the purpose of relationship, to help foster healthier communication between you and your God. Because I believe that this trust thing is really big. That if, if I can do anything, if I can help you know him for who he really is more clearly, then your relationship with him will be more trusting, it'll be healthier, it'll be stronger. If I can help you, give you skills and, and tools so that there can be better communication between you and your God, then your relationship with him will be healthier. That's why I exist. That's why I'm here. It's for that purpose, so that you would know him better. 
Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. This is one of like the major verses in my life. When he prayed for them, he prayed that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? To know God better. It's, it's a driving passion for me to help people know God better. And I think the wisdom of explaining who the Father truly is and revelation so that communication can happen at a healthier level between you and your God, those are aspects that will help foster your knowledge of him, his heart, his ways, his love. We have a good God. And and he hasn't been presented very well throughout human history. I want to see it changed. So let's pray. Would you guys close your eyes for a moment, if you would, please? And I want to pray for you. If... If the things I've said today have stirred something in you, if you've been able to identify that you have a hard time really trusting God, if that somehow resonates with you, the whole trust issue, if that resonates with you, would you just put your hand up for a second? I want to see if that's real for people. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, I thought so. I struggle with it too sometimes. So let's pray. Father, I I just don't think we know who you really are. I think we've seen glimpses, and, and, and I think you've had some really bad PR. And I'm not satisfied with that. So would you help us? Lord, would you take the scales from our eyes? Would you take the calluses from our, from our hearts, the dullness from our, from our minds, the deafness from our ears, the, the false vision image of who you actually are? Would you dissipate that? Lord, this is my prayer. Scripture says, I pray that we would know the truth and that it would set us free. That we would know the truth of who you actually are. And not how you've been misrepresented throughout the church ages. I pray that we would know you. I ask from the depth of my being that you would pour out upon my friends today the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That they would know you better. That we would know you better. Do it, Lord. Lord, I pray that you set us free from religion. Set us free from fear and shame and guilt and condemnation. Set us free, oh God. Set us free to see you for who you really are and enter into a love relationship with you. Whatever it takes. Lord, I pray the stupid prayer today. Whatever it takes, Lord. Whatever it takes. Whatever the price, whatever the cost, I don't care. Would you do whatever it takes in my life so that I would truly know you and I could truly trust you? Come and do the things that only you can do. Do it for us, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. Have a very happy Easter. Enjoy the rest of your day with your family. And uh, we will see you throughout the week.